All right, turn your Bibles to James chapter 2. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse study. By way of quick review, let's bring you up to speed because context is king when we study the Word of God. We really need to understand who's writing and who they are writing to to have a proper understanding of the text. And this morning, it's especially important. Now, real quickly again, it's written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, who did not give his life to the Lord, who did not believe in Jesus, who was his half-brother, as the Messiah until after he rose from the dead. But by, by the time we get to this letter, some 30 or 40 years after Jesus has ascended back into heaven, James is writing this letter, and by this time, he's become a pillar in the church. We notice his heart as he considers himself a bondservant, and he's writing to the early church after they had been dispersed through persecution. They're now all over the, you know, much of the known world, certainly throughout the Roman Empire at this point. They're all spread out, and he writes this letter to encourage them because they are facing persecution. They are going through trials. They are going through difficulty. And so this letter is to exhort and to encourage them, and it has a great deal of application to us as well. So this letter was written, again, these people have left home and family and friends, and they're they're spread out all over the place, and it was a tough time to be people of faith. They were facing great difficulty, but in the midst of it, this letter exhorts them to trust in the sovereignty of God, that God indeed is faithful. So the exhortations we've seen so far, all of which apply to us, this is one of the most applicable books. Every book's applicable in the Bible, of course, or wouldn't be in the Bible, but this is such a clear, has clear application for us today. So far, what we've seen is the exhortation in the midst of persecution to count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Now, I know I didn't even need to repeat that because all of you guys have got that pretty well handled since we taught it a few weeks ago, right? When things are difficult, we all just are filled with joy and trusting in God. Amen? Well, we know we need to do better than that, don't we? But you know what? He encourages them that in the midst of trials, God has put them in our lives for a reason, that he might be glorified and that we might grow spiritually. He moves on from counting it all joy in the midst of trials, trials that he allowed to come into our life. He then encourages them to endure temptation. While trials are brought by God to grow us spiritually, temptation comes from the enemy to draw us away from the Lord. So he tells them to endure temptation, and through that, it's another opportunity for them to grow. He then says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. Guys, we all lack wisdom, and we need to ask of God. Instead of running to the world, let's run to the Lord. Amen? He does have the answers. And so in the midst of the trials and the temptations, the one we need to run to is the Lord. He's the one who can give us the clear direction. He then, as we get ready to look at this morning's text, he kind of gives them some examples of how to do these things. The first thing he says is be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Think back on the mess ups you've had in your life, and if you had applied those principles, how many of them would have gone away? If you had just been swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath, me too. He then exhorts them to put feet to their faith, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Guys, it's not enough to believe in our heads. It's not enough just to believe there is a God. And we're going to talk about that in great detail this morning. But we need to move beyond belief in theory to behavior practically in our everyday lives. We need to look at God's word and then do exactly as it says. And so he's encouraging them, he's exhorting them to not just be hearers of the word, to stand strong in the midst of persecution, to allow God to be glorified in the midst of this difficulty. And then he gives some basic examples on some things that need to change. If you're a doer of the word, these things will be evident. And we'll get into more details as we go through the chapters, but he touched on them briefly. He says, if you're a doer of the word, it should change the way you speak. Your mouth, you know, out of the overflowings of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. Nothing slips out of your mouth. What comes out of your mouth reveals your heart. And so we need to be careful what comes out of our mouths. We'll talk about that more next week. Then how we treat others. He told them to minister to the orphans and the widows, to not show partiality to the wealthy, to be faithful in your marriage, and not to bring harm to another. And then finally, he ended the 
the text last time, to show mercy to others, for indeed mercy triumphs over judgment. So these exhortations have been viewed by some to be in direct contrast to some other parts of the Bible. I'm just being real open with you because you're going to hear this sometimes. There are people that say the book of James shouldn't be in the Bible. They're wrong, of course. There are, those are, you know, there are people that question the resurrection, too. They're wrong as well. But people doubt or question the book of James because they say, well, it contradicts the teaching of Paul. Because Paul says we're saved by faith alone. We're saved by you know, grace, by faith. You know, not of works lest any man should boast. It's the grace of God. It's faith in God. It's not the works that we do. And now, especially as we get to this morning's text, we're going to talk a great deal about works. Now, can they both... They contradict each other, don't they? The Bible is very clear that the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. Amen? And my prayer is as you walk out of here, you will understand that it's not faith or works or faith plus works, but indeed it is faith that works. Amen? And faith alone saves us, but the faith that saves us is not alone. Amen? It brings works with it, and we're going to see that in this morning's text. Romans 10, 9 and 10 does say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. So, there's a very clear exhortation that salvation comes through confession. It's not a list of do's. It's not do, do, do. With Jesus Christ, it's done. Amen? It is finished when he died on the cross of Calvary. But guys, what we're going to see this morning in good works is not the source of salvation, but the fruit of salvation. It's not the thing that saves us, but it's proof that we've been saved. And it's very important that we don't get those things mixed up. It's the grace train that brings works behind it, not the other way around. It's not us doing good works and then grace follows. It's the grace of God and then the good works follow. Do we understand? Are we all on the same page? That's the, what this text this morning is really all about. Guys, it's not about keeping rules and rites and rituals. It's about a right relationship with Almighty God. We don't earn salvation. We're given, it's given to us freely. So if you're a note taker this morning, I titled the message. See, I went through my whole outline without flipping a page. See how that happens? So... The, the outline this morning is Faith That Works. Title of the message, Faith That Works. And we're going to see four points about faith that works. True faith produces an action. It's not faith if it produces nothing. It's not faith just to believe something could happen, but do nothing about it. If we really believe it, then it should impact our behavior. Number two, we're going to see examples of dead faith. What does it look like to have faith that's not really faith? What does dead faith look like? We'll see that in the text this morning. Number three, a living faith cannot be separated from good works. When you see living faith, good works will always follow. And then finally, we'll see some examples of living faith in two people that are spoken of at the end of the chapter. So faith that works, true faith produces an action. Let's begin in verse 14, taking a look. And faith that works. And it says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now again, if you take this out of context, you're going to get confused. Well, Pastor Dave, is, aren't we saved by faith? Understand that he says, can faith save him? What kind of faith is he talking about? The faith he just described. What kind of faith is that? What is it proffering if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Here's the key word in that verse, says. If someone says he has faith, but does not have good works, does he really have faith? And we're going to see as we go through the chapter, no he doesn't. He's a professor, not a doer. Amen? He professes to have faith, he says he has faith, but his life doesn't show it. Guys, here's the reality. 85% of Americans say that they are Christians. Do you think that's an accurate number? What's the answer? If that were true, would this place be different or what? Our country would be so radically different. And you know what? I do a lot of funerals. And every funeral I've ever done, and I understand why the family feels this way, they always think the person was saved. They always point back to some camp they went to at eight years old, and they walked an aisle, and they 
said that they believed in God. They said that they had become a Christian. Guys, it's not enough to say we believe in God. If we believe in God and we're walking with God and we're filled with His Spirit, then it ought to reflect in the way we live. Amen? Not enough just to say I believe. Belief is more than saying with my mouth. It's true confession and brokenness before Him and repentance, which means to turn around. My life ought to be different if I've truly given my life to Jesus Christ. So this verse doesn't say he's a believer, but a sayer, a professor. His only evidence of whether or not he is saved is found in his words, but it is not seen in his actions. Can a faith that says but doesn't do really save? A faith that says I believe, but nothing ever changes. Guys, how in the world can the spirit of the living God come to live inside of you and nothing change? That's impossible, isn't it? You know, if somebody is, a, is spiritually dead and they become a new creation in Christ, everything ought to be radically different, amen? You know, if, so, if you go down to the morgue and there's a bunch of corpses there, maybe you work in the mortuary, you work in the morgue, and you're down there and all these bodies are in there for a, a while, and then one day, one of them gets up and starts walking around. I think you would notice, amen? Here's the point. Physically dead to physically alive, it's a more radical transformation to go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Amen? And yet there are those who profess to know God because they believe there is a God. We'll talk about that more as we move on through the text. Can one be a true believer in Jesus Christ and live a life of complete disobedience to his word? Can saving faith exist that is void of good works, that a life that doesn't change, there's no evidence of obedience in their life at all? Can man's words alone save him when his actions deny what he confesses? Again, the inference here is very clear. This empty type of fruitless faith is no faith at all. What he's saying is, if you just say that you believe, but there's nothing that's ever changed, you don't believe. Because guys, if we believe it, we'll live different, amen? This empty type of fruitless faith truly is no faith at all. And it's impossible for someone to truly come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and not be different. If there's been no change, there's been no salvation. Now let me just address this, and I don't want to, please don't anyone here be offended. I find it interesting when we have altar calls here, there are some people that raise their hand every single time. We can have an altar call every week for a year and they'd raise their hand every week. Now, again, I understand, again, they want the assurance of salvation. Can I encourage you with something? If you've given your life to Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God has come to live inside of you, you ought to know it. Amen? And you won't have to raise your hand every week because you've been transformed. You are a different person. Maybe you're here today, though, and you walked down and you prayed a prayer and your life never changed. You need to examine your heart because it says in that verse, if he says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith, can that type of faith save him? And the answer is no. There's been no faith change. There's been no salvation. When someone has truly been saved, there's a radical transformation in that person's life. Again, I quoted it already, but if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. It's easy to pick out a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit when they walk around in a room, amen? But sadly, we live in a time when people just, well, I believe in God. And true salvation is more than belief in your head, but a transformation of your heart and a a radical change in the way that you live. The Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice. Pastor Dave, are you preaching works-based salvation? The answer is no. It's faith-based salvation, but true faith produces works because I'm different now, amen? How can I walk around with the Spirit of the living God living inside of me and continue on in my sinful behavior without conviction? It's impossible. Does it mean I'm going to be perfect? Of course not. But don't I view sin differently? What's the answer? Think about before you were saved how you viewed sin. And think about how you view it now. It's the Holy Spirit who transforms us. True faith, I know I'm pounding this into the ground, but true faith produces change. No change, no faith. No change, no salvation. 
Guys, the sinner's prayer, praying the, the you know, specific, forgive me, I just had a new tooth put in and I'm stumbling all over it. I have to go get the thing ground down. But it's too big, it's wrong, okay? But you never thought I'd stumble, did you? But here's the thing. The sinner's prayer is not just, you know, like letting a genie out of the bottle. You know, just say these magic words and you'll go to heaven. Guys, there is a sinner's prayer, but the point is confession and repentance. And I'm concerned when I see someone coming to Christ and there are no tears. Because if we truly repentant, we'll be broken over our sin. Amen? A brokenness, a recognition of my desperate need for a Savior. If that doesn't happen, there won't be a change. And all we've done is given ourselves a false assurance of where we'll go when we die. Guys, you're going to spend eternity with the one you've spent your time on earth with. If you know the Lord, nothing's going to change except you're going to go right into his presence from here. Amen? But he already lives inside of you. You've already been adopted into his family. A better question than have you prayed this prayer is have you truly been born again? Have you given your life to him? Are you filled with his Holy Spirit? Are you walking in newness of life? Is your life producing fruit? That's the question. Not did you pray a prayer, not were you baptized. Again, those are good things, but those in and of themselves won't save you if there hasn't been a heart transformation along with it. You know, I could bring in a thousand drunks in here, promise them all a bottle of whiskey, and get them all to say the sinner's prayer with me. No problem. Think that's true or not? Would they all be saved? What do you think? So it's not just a saying some words. This is where, you know, the relationship becomes dead rituals. The whole point he's making here as he's talking to these guys who are being persecuted, who are wavering in their faith, is he's telling them, look, just outward confession means nothing. There must be good works. Because if there are no works, you don't really have faith, and that faith cannot save you. You know, I'm seeing more and more of this today. It breaks my heart. And again, I mentioned it already. One of the main places I see it is in funerals. I go to a funeral, and they'll tell me the person's life. I did a funeral one time. It was a young man who died from a drug overdose, who'd been on drugs since he was young, who had stolen everything, who was out of control, his life was a disaster, he had rejected God his entire life, but they recalled the time when he was a little boy and he went to Sunday school and came home and said he believed in God, so they believed he was in heaven. Now here's the point. Only God can determine if someone's in heaven or not. Amen? That's not my job. I don't want that job. Thank you, Lord. But there's no fruit. There's no salvation. That's God to judge. But guys, we need to stop saying, well, I pray to pray. Now I understand my heart was to reach out to that family. I'm certainly not going to reject what they've said because at this point it's too late to save him anyway. But here's the point. If you're here today and you're resting in the fact that you prayed a prayer some years ago or you walked an aisle or you were baptized or you fulfilled some religious ritual, if your life has never changed, you need to be born again. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ today before you walk out of here, amen? And truly give your life to him completely. I have a few coworkers. Most of you know I still work full time. I have a coworker who sits not far from me. He's got a short fuse, a foul mouth. He drinks and parties all the time. He's sleeping with multiple women. He, he has no church attendance whatsoever. But as soon as I start talking about God, he talks to me about how he's a Christian. And I'm like, bro, come on. Dude, man, I love you, man, but please. You know what Christian means? Little Christ. Did you know that? Now, are we, again, we're not perfect. We're sinners saved by grace, amen? But here's the point. People ought to be able to see Jesus in us, in the way that we live. And I'm encouraging you because I would rather have a few people be offended and leave here mad at me than you never to hear this, never to be exhorted with the very thing that James is exhorting them with. It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to pray a prayer. We need to be radically transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and start living every day for Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what the Lord has called us to do. Truth is, a godless, fruit, fruitless, sinful, convictionless life, it's impossible for a spirit-filled believer to live like that. Don't put your faith in what you've done, but what he's done. 
So faith produces works. True faith produces an action. If there's been no change, there's been no salvation. Now he's going to give some examples. Point number two, an example of dead faith. So he says, can that faith, what kind of faith? The kind of faith that shows no works. Can that faith save him? The inference here is absolutely not. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? If somebody is, now notice the depths of where they are. If someone has no clothing and no food, look at the severity of the situation. A fellow Christian is a place of total desperation. Now, God promises to believers to provide our necessities, amen? Not our wants, our needs. So he promises that, and as he promises that, sometimes the people in this room are the one God wants to use to be a part of that provision. We need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit when we see someone else in the body really struggling, that we come alongside and minister to them. Because that's what the Lord would have us to do. So you come upon such a person, a brother, a sister, or a family, and they're in desperate need. How do we respond? Notice what it says. And one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed, and be filled. You're a sayer of the word, not a doer. Amen? Or Keith Green. How many of you have heard of Keith Green before? All right? If you can listen to that guy and not be convicted, you're not saved. Amen? Is that true or what? He's in heaven now. But one of the songs he, I, I went and got the lyrics because he quotes this verse. It's called Asleep in the Light. It says, do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Oh, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. You know it's all I ever hear. No one aches, no one hurts, no one even sheds one tear. But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. It says, because he brings people to your door, and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you, be at peace. And all heaven just weeps, because Jesus came to your door, and you left him out in the street. The Bible says when we do it to the least of these, we do it as unto the Lord. Amen? You give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. God is glorified, and he said he will reward you for that. But notice here, one who is faithless, he has no works, so all he gives people is a religious platitude. Depart and be warmed and be filled, and, you know, Lord be with you. And then you go get in your, you know, expensive car and drive home to your big house while he's starving on the street. That's not how a Christian should respond. Amen? Now, I want to say this too, because we have, so do we help everyone then? What do you think the answer is to that? Should we help everyone? Maybe we should all sell our houses, go down to the Pacific Garden Mall, and just hand out food until we run out, and then we'll all be homeless too. Maybe we should do that. I want you to notice something. It's for a brother or a sister in the family of God who is destitute. It's not for someone who is lazy. It's not, you've got to read the whole counsel of God. Amen. Bible says, a man who does not work shall not eat. Someone loses their job for a month or two and needs help, and they're trying to find work. We need to help them. Amen. Somebody's laying at home or going surfing for nine months and not going to work. Uh, not going to prop up the sinful behavior. Amen. I need to point that out because what will happen is there will be people showing up. I'm, I'm doing the work of the Lord. I'm doing the work of the Lord. You need to pay my rent. Ah, uh, No. You need to get a job. Amen? A man who does not work shall not eat. At the same time, when we see someone destitute and hurting, we are to reach out to them in love. And that's what this text says. Here's the point he's making. The point he's making is the difference between one who says they know God and one who lives like it. Someone who says they have faith, but there are no actions that follow. You look at that person hurting, and you say, God be with you. Religious platitude. And you walk away, and you do nothing. You know what? If we're filled with the spirit of the living God, it ought to grip us when we see people like that. 
We ought to reach out to them in love. See their desperate need. Respond with action, not with empty words. And again, people with dead faith substitute words for deeds. When you have dead faith, you speak a lot and you do nothing. And when you have true faith, you speak little and you do a lot. Amen? You'd rather go out and minister to somebody than talk about it. Can I tell you, I get leery when I have people come up and tell me all they're doing for the kingdom of God. And there are people that love to do that. They love to, get, you know, especially if you're the pastor. I'm new here. Let me just tell you all the wonderful things I'm doing for God. Whatever. Here, you know, the point is, get over yourself. Amen? You know, God was really impressed with you by doing that for him. Guys, without him, we can do what? And I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So who should get all the glory? Him. So if God wants someone to know what you're doing for him, he'll let them know. You don't need to say anything. You keep, you know, let's keep our mouths shut and our, get on our knees. And if we're going to open them, let's pray and intercede on behalf of others. The point he's driving home is that words are not enough. It's not enough to just tell someone, go and be warm and be filled. It's not enough to just say, I believe in God. There needs to be some actions that follow that represent someone whose life has been radically transformed. Someone who is filled with the spirit of the living God. And it says there, but if you, give, if you do not give them the things which are needed, what does it profit? Again, true faith is to produce more than empty words. It's to reach out and love that person. True love produces more than words, it produces actions. True faith produces more than words, it produces actions. And the greatest example of that is the most quoted verse in the Bible, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. True love produces an action that we give. True faith produces an action that we reach out. It's not enough to say I believe and do nothing. If we truly believe, it ought to impact how we live. True faith produces an action. Dead faith produces nothing more than lip service. The word tells tells us when we give to the least, we're doing it to the Lord. What have we given to the Lord lately? The body of Christ is is called to minister to both physical and spiritual needs. And just as a a point of emphasis here, I want to say this. I don't think we should be going and building a house for somebody and then never mention Jesus either. Amen? You go down to Mexico and you build a house and that's a wonderful thing. But you know what? If we don't point them to Jesus Christ, all we've done is given them shelter as they're on their way to hell without him. Amen? So we want to go down and we want to minister to their physical needs, but we want to give them the word of God at the same time. Both of those need to go together. Amen? I read a great illustration. It's a true story about a man named Doug Nichols. While serving in Operation Mobilization in India in 1967, tuberculosis forced this man into a sanitarium for several months. And here's what he says. I did not yet speak the language, but I tried to give Christian literature written in their language to the patients and the doctors and the nurses, and every one of them politely refused. I sensed many weren't happy about a rich American. To, to them, all Americans are rich. Being in a free government-run sanitarium or hospital. They didn't know I was just as broke as they were. The first few nights, I woke up around 2 a.m. coughing. One morning during my coughing spell, I noticed an older and sicker patient across the aisle trying to get out of bed. He would sit on the edge of bed and try to stand, but in his weakness, he would fall back into the bed. I didn't understand what he was trying to do. He finally fell back in his exhaustion. I heard him crying softly. The next morning, I realized what the man was trying to do. He was trying to get up and walk to the bathroom. The stench in our ward was awful. Our patients yelled insults at him. The angry nurses moved him roughly as they cleaned up the mess. One nurse even slapped him across the face. The old man curled up in a ball and wept. The next night, I again woke up coughing. I noticed the man across the aisle sit up and again trying to stand like the night before. But he fell back, whimpering. I don't like doing these kinds of things. It's out of my comfort zone. I didn't really want to get involved, but I got out of bed and went over to him. When I touched his shoulder, his eyes opened wide with fear. I smiled and put my arms under him, and I picked him up. He was very light due to his old age and advanced tuberculosis. I carried him to the washroom, which was just a filthy small room with a hole in the floor. I stood behind him with my arms under his armpits as he took care of himself. 
After he finished, I picked him up and carried him back to his bed. After I laid him down, he kissed me on the cheek and smiled and said something I couldn't understand. The next morning, another patient woke me, handed me a steaming cup of tea. He motioned with his hands that he wanted a tract. As the sun rose, other patients approached and indicated they wanted booklets I'd been trying to distribute before. Throughout the day, nurses and interns and doctors all came and asked for literature. Weeks later, an evangelist who spoke their language visited me. And as he talked to the others, he discovered several had put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior as a result of reading the tracts. What did it take to reach these people with the gospel? It wasn't health. It wasn't the ability to speak their language or persuasive talk. I simply took a trip to the bathroom. Sometimes, guys, it's the simplest thing. Amen? Sometimes it's just reaching out in love, being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit to go do something very simple that's going to open the door for you to now share the gospel. Can I encourage you? Go outside of your comfort zone at work. Go outside of your comfort zone in your neighborhood, even if it's out of your job description. Start helping other people and watch the opportunity you're going to have to share your faith. It's amazing how God will do that. It's often the simplest and kindest thing that opens the door for the gospel. Verse 17. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he says, you know, they just give lip service, and giving lip service, they do nothing. They take no action. What does it profit? It profits nothing. And then he says in verse 17, thus faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith alone saves us, but it must be a living faith. A faith that produces empty words produces no works, and it is a dead faith. It's not true faith in Almighty God. The word dead there is one that has breathed his last and has departed. It's destitute of force or power. One who only professes does not have true faith. True faith produces a changed and fruitful life. I know I'm repeating this, but I'm going to keep doing it. No change, no salvation. How many have heard that song by Stephen Curtis Chapman, What About the Change? Right? It talks about all the Christian bumper stickers, and you got the Christian, you got the Christian t-shirts, and you got all the Christian stuff, and you got you know, eight Bibles in your house. And then he says, but what about the change? Where's the transformation in your life? We can have all the religious paraphernalia in the world, but if we've given our life to Jesus Christ, it'll be reflected in the way that we live. True faith will be accompanied by works and obedience. So faith that works. True faith produces an action. Here we see an example of dead faith. Dead faith produces nothing. We see the need, we don't respond. Why? Because we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. If there's been no change, there's been no salvation. Point number three. A living faith cannot be separated from good works. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Some will try to separate faith and works. And they'll say, well, I have the gift of faith, but I don't have the gift of works. I have the gift of faith. I have a gift to really believe things for other people. I just don't have the gift of works. Can I tell you? That doesn't exist. Because if you have the gift of faith, it'll be borne out in the works that you do. Amen? If there's real faith, real... Guys, if we really believed... If we really believe that we're going to heaven, if we really believe that every single person is going to stand before Almighty God one day and be judged for all eternity, then every believer this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. Amen? It should be consuming us. It should burden us. And sadly, what happens, we get so caught up in living our life. Guys, we all have to have not just the gift of faith, but the works that follow. James makes it very clear in this verse that you cannot separate the two. He says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James not talking about works as a way of salvation. He's talking about works as proof of faith. We can't see someone's faith, but we can see the works their faith produces. Amen? If we really believe it, then it ought to impact. You know, we had a young man just leave and go to Thailand. You know, we have uh, uh, missionaries we support all over the world. And when they sell everything and leave, that's an act of faith, isn't it? And we don't, you can't see their faith, but you can see the works that that faith produces. And what he's saying is, true belief is demonstrated 
by godly behavior. If there's no godly behavior, there's no true belief. If there's no works, there's no faith because it's not faith or works or faith plus works. It's faith that works. Then he says, you believe there is one God. You do well. But notice this. Even the demons believe and tremble. This is the thing that people like to run to. I believe in God. Uh, James lets them know. So does Satan. Right? I was listening to one uh, Calvary pastor teaching this text, and he said, you know, the demons have better theology than many Christian churches today. They're not atheist or agnostic, right? They know there's a God. They've seen him, right? He created them. They're very aware. They believe Jesus died on the cross. They know that he rose from the dead. They've seen it. They know that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. They know that heaven's real. There's not a doubt in their mind, but guess what? They're going to spend eternity separated from God. Why? Because they never, tr- they don't trust in him. They've rebelled against him. Guys, it's not enough to believe there is a God. The demons believe and tremble. Well, I believe in God. Well, you could even say, well, not only do I believe in God, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and that he is the only way to heaven. And I believe that he rose from the dead on the third day. I believe all of those things. Guys, is that enough to be saved? Some of you might say, well, maybe. I mean, if you believe that. Guys, to know that that's true is one thing. To accept him and invite him to come and rule and reign in your life is another. You look at Passover. Remember back in, you know, when they were in captivity in Egypt. When the Jews were in captivity. When Israel was in captivity in Egypt. And they wanted to be delivered out of bondage. You remember what the last plague was? It was the Passover. And what happened was they had to take the blood of the lamb and apply it on the doorpost in the shape of a cross. It wasn't enough to go out and get the lamb and bring it home. If you got the lamb and brought it home and did nothing else, when the angel of death came, the oldest firstborn would die. It wasn't enough to bring the lamb into the house, make sure it was spotless, and even sacrifice it. Because... The angel of death would come, and the person in the home would die. The only way that person was delivered, they had to take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the home. Apply it to the doorpost. Guys, it's not enough to believe that Jesus is the lamb of God. It's not enough even to believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. You must apply him to your life. You must accept him as Lord and Savior. You need to get off the throne and put him there in your place. You need to accept him not just as the Savior, but your Lord, your God, and your King, and give him your life completely. That's what it means to be a Christian. Anything short of that, you're not a Christian. Pastor Dave, that's kind of right. Then there's not as many Christians as we think. That's true. I'm not happy about that, but it's true. Belief is essential, but we must go beyond belief in God to have a relationship with Him. Giving God our lives completely. Because, again, even the demons believe and tremble. The demons know all of those things we just discussed, but they're still lost. Because belief is not enough. Belief alone in Jesus Christ, that He is God, puts you on par with Satan. Do you understand that? I know this is radical to hear all this this morning. I just came, you know, I didn't have, I was invited by a friend, and what is this? <laughs> I believe there's a God, God. You know what? Divine appointment. We're all here by, not by chance, by divine appointment. Amen? God brought us here for a reason this morning. True living faith cannot be separated from good works. Again, if there's been no change, there's been no salvation. Have you gone beyond belief to true faith? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Are you married to him? We're his bride. Is he your best friend? Do you walk with him and talk with him and have intimate fellowship with him? That's what it means to be a Christian. Not giving him an hour a week or once a month, but truly walking with him. Faith that works. Point number one. True faith produces an action. Number two, an example of dead faith. We saw dead faith produces nothing. Number three, a living faith cannot be separated from good works. Now finally, let's look at two examples fairly quickly here. Look what it says in verse 20. But do you, do you want to know, O foolish man, 
that faith without works is dead. Is that pretty clear? He looks at him and says, oh, foolish man that's putting your faith in, you know, I have faith. I believe. That's got me in heaven. If there's no works, there's no faith. And he's telling them that faith without works is dead. It is foolish to think that we can live a life void of good works, without obedience, without any spiritual growth, and still be saved. A faith that does not produce fruit is dead faith. True and living faith is seen in good works and obedience to God's word. And now he's going to give two examples of that. Look at the first one is Abraham, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now that's faith. Faith isn't just saying, okay, I believe in God. I believe there is a God. I believe God could raise my son from the dead. I believe the word of God. I believe what he says. It's another thing to believe it enough. It says in Hebrews 11 that he believed that if God needed to, he would raise his son from the dead. But he obeyed God completely. That's faith. Abraham's faith was enough that he took his son up on Mount Moriah. Now, most people envision Isaac as being a little boy. The the reality is he was probably in his 20s, maybe even 30 years old. He's going up the mountain with him. And think about how Isaac was willing to lay down. His dad's 125 or so. Isaac could have tore his dad up. But Isaac lays down on the altar. Isaac's willing to be sacrificed. What's this a picture of? It's Jesus Christ. Isaac is carrying the wood up Mount Moriah. Do you know that Calvary is on the foothills of Mount Moriah? It's not by chance in the Bible. And he's carrying the wood, and we see as he holds up the knife, and he's willing to kill his son, the Lord stops him. And I love this part. It says, he looked and saw a ram in the thicket, for the Lord had provided himself a sacrifice. He didn't have to put his son to death because the Lord would die in his place. Amen? But the point is, Abraham's faith, a faith that cannot be tested, is a faith that cannot be trusted. Abraham is a man of great faith because what he was willing to do for God. Lord, it's all yours, including my son. Think about that, those of you who are parents. It won't shock you, but I have no problem admitting that Abraham is a far better man than me. Because, what if I called Rodney up here with that beautiful little boy and asked him to do the same thing? I think Rodney, uh, not so much. Maybe Rodney's got him. I look at my three sons. I mean, kill me first. Don't take them. But here's Abraham. That's faith. Amen. He said, Lord, I trust you. I believe you. You'll raise him from the dead if you have to. You know what, Lord? Even though I don't get it, I trust you. That's faith. Faith is stepping out even when I don't understand. Look, it says, do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. I love this. The word made perfect there is made complete. You know how he was made complete in his relationship with the Lord? Is he stepped out in faith even when he didn't understand. Abraham's faith was brought to its highest through his obedience. When we're obedient, God is glorified and we get blessed. It's when we're willing to say, okay, Lord, I don't understand, but you've told me I'm willing. Lord, here I am, Lord, use me, send me. I don't understand. Lord, this doesn't make sense. You've already promised the Messiah would come through my son. If I kill him, how is that possible? But you know what, Lord, I'm not going to question. I'm just going to obey. Abraham, a man of great faith. He was working to, his faith was working with his works. See, again, it's faith that works. Verse 23. And scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. You've got to underline those three verses. Could it be said, Dave believed God? Whatever your name, believes God. It says in Hebrews, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up his son Isaac, who had, who had received the promises, offered him up as his only begotten son, of whom it is said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Abraham's belief was manifested in his behavior. True faith will impact the way we live. Belief will impact our behavior. Abraham believed God. And look what it says. And it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. I love this, you guys. It was 
his faith in God, his belief in God that was accounted to him for righteousness. Amen? It wasn't his works that were accounted for righteousness. It was his faith that was accounted for righteousness. But the proof of his faith was his willingness to do the works. You can't separate the two. It wasn't the sacrifice of Isaac that made him accounted righteous or his willingness to sacrifice him, but his belief in God. The manifestation of that faith was his obedience to God's command to offer up his son. And then it says he was called the friend of God. Who wants to be the friend of God? Amen? When I was a youth pastor, people are so into their friends. You know, homie got my back, man. You know, I got the right friend. You know, I'm hanging out. You know, and I was a youth pastor. I used to say, dude, can I tell you something? Those friends you got, three years from now, you won't even know where they live. I'll tell you the home he got my back. How about creator of the universe? Alpha and Omega, that's my best friend, amen? We need to be friends with God. How are we friends with God? We obey him. We spend time with him. We walk with him. We give our lives to him, amen? Imagine if you had a friend and you never talked to him. You wouldn't be friends long. If you ignored them when they called you, if you never, you know, they wrote you a letter and you never read it, your friend wrote you a letter. Are you reading it, Amen? Let's spend time in his word. Let's be a friend of God. This is a strong exhortation to these early Christians. Remember, they're struggling with obedience. They're in doubt you know, and difficulty. But you know what? I believe that their difficulty was far less than Abraham's. Right? They're being persecuted, but none of them had had to drag their son or their daughter out and sacrifice them to the Lord. He's giving them this example that, look, here's a man who was faithful in much more trying times than you are. You can be faithful too. Now, some of them might have said, well, that's Abraham. I'm no Abraham. Well, just in case that was going to happen, he gives them one last example, and we'll close with this. Look what he says. First, he says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So the example that we see in Abraham, the the reason God used him in such a mighty way is he put feet to his faith. But now look at this. Because again, the works don't save you, but obedience does. Now in case Abraham is too high for them to reach up to, look what he says in verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? Oh, we can't. Oh. Because they're gonna, they could have said, well, Abraham, he's Father Abraham. We call him Father Abraham. We sing songs about him. I can't be that guy. Okay, how about the prostitute Rahab, who wasn't even a Jew, who was in Jericho, and when the spies came in, she recognized the God that they served, and she hid them out, putting her own life on the line because she believed in God. Her faith produced works. If God can do that in a Gentile prostitute, how about you guys? It's kind of the message James is giving them. Hey, if he can do it in them, how about you? How about me? How about each one of us? Father Abraham, but also Rahab, the harlot. One thing to say you believe, another thing to act like it. Rahab's belief was born out in her behavior. Last verse. For as the body without the spirit, so faith is dead. So faith without works is dead also. A spiritless body is dead, and faith without works is dead. We are saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But true faith is is revealed in good works. Again, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, and it was accounted to him for righteousness because he heard the word of God and he believed. Rahab, this Gentile prostitute, she walks by faith by simply recognizing and put her life on the line. She takes what she believes and it produces an action. From Abraham, we learn this example. If we believe God, we will do whatever he tells us to do without question. Okay, Lord, you've told me, I'm going to do it. That's what Abraham did. But like Rahab, if we believe God will help us, we should be ministering to his people, even if it's at our own expense. Rahab was ministering to God's people at her own expense, laying her own life on the line. In Abraham, we see the example, Lord, my life is yours, I'll do whatever you ask. And in Rahab, we see the heart to minister to others. These are both works that true faith produces. Amen? I love, too, that we see such a contrast, a Jewish patriarch and a Gentile prostitute. That means God can use anybody. Amen? 
even me, even you. He's a faithful God. True faith is not revealed through great claims, but by obedience and good works. Guys, is your belief seen in your behavior? Is your faith demonstrated by futile words or by faithful works? So in closing, faith that works. Faith that works, true faith produces an action. An example of dead faith, we saw that. It's one that only gives lift service but does nothing. Thirdly, a living faith cannot be separated from good works. If there's truly living faith, then the good works will be evident. And then lastly, we saw examples of living faith. In Abraham, willing to sacrifice everything. In Rahab, willing to serve others, even at her own expense. You know what? It's time for the Christian church in the United States of America to start living lives of true faith. Amen? To not just pay lip service to God. To not be a Christian for an hour and check our Christianity at the door. We ought to be just as on fire for God at work on Monday morning as we are here on Sunday. Amen? Lord, help us to take our faith home with us today. Amen? And to live it out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We worship and honor your most holy name. And Lord, I lift up anybody here this morning who's never truly given their life to you. Maybe they've prayed a prayer, but their life never changed. Maybe they walked an aisle, they fulfilled a ritual, but they can't truly look back and see any change in their life. Lord, if there's anybody here who's not walking with you, filled with your Holy Spirit, truly in love with you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, that we wouldn't raise our hand to mumble some words that we think will be the get-out-of-hell-free card. But Lord, truly, we'll come this morning and say, Lord, I give you my life starting right now. I'm not just looking for heaven to come, but I want to live for you starting today. I want you to be on the throne of my life. I want you to rule and reign in my life. I want you to inhabit my every word. I want you, Lord, to help me to walk in obedience to you. If that's your desire this morning, the Bible does say today's the day of salvation. And the Bible does say if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. But there needs to go beyond just mouthing the words. There needs to be a transformation of the heart. If it's your desire today to give your life to Jesus Christ, to truly make him the Lord, to put him on the throne, to give your life to him completely, not just for the get out of hell free card, the insurance one day, but to say, Lord, I want you to rule and reign starting right now. You take control if that's your desire. The Bible says if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If that's what you want, I want you to, if you can, I want you to stand to your feet so I can pray with you. Is there anybody here at all? God bless you. Anybody else? Today's a day of salvation. God bless you. Anybody else? The Lord loves you guys. We're all going to stand before him one day. Is there anybody else? Those who are standing, just repeat after me. Everybody else, just be praying. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit, to forgive me for my sin. Help me to walk with you to give my life completely to you. Lord, I want it to be more than words. I want it to be a transforming of my life. Thank you, Lord, for your promise to help me. Thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand and close the worship song. Amen.